What is going on, everybody? It's Athea Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Man, oh man, do we have a treat for you today. Uh, it's possible you have heard of the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. That was written by a man named Dr. Robert Glover, and he is our featured guest of today. Uh, this guy is a probably the best-selling author that we've had. He, this guy has sold a lot of books, and he actually alludes to it in the interview that the royalty checks get bigger and bigger every year, uh, which means even though it was written 20 years ago, the message continues to spread and reach more people and change more lives. And so I brought him on really because I think that nice guy syndrome drives a lot of addicts, especially people who struggle with porn addiction and sexual misbehavior. And we actually get into why that is a thing. Uh, why is it that, you know, nice guys and people pleasers and uh, that sort of thing, why do they fall into this more debilitating secretive sexual misbehavior. Uh, we talked a little bit about just the qualities of a nice guy. Uh, he talked about the three covert contracts that every nice guy makes and lives by. And then we talked about the recovery process at the end. And um, he gives some really good advice. And I asked him one of my favorite questions, which is like, hey, uh, it's one thing for us to like identify our dysfunction and heal from it. But then how do we actually make sure that we don't repeat this in our kids, you know, in the future generations? And he had a really insightful answer to that. So this was a very robust interview. Um, I could have, I actually had another appointment. I was so bummed because he was good to talk for like another 30 minutes. But uh, but we kind of cut it off probably around the hour mark. And, um, and I know that you're going to get so much value from this. Let me really quickly read his bio just so you have an idea of who it is you're about to listen to. And then we'll jump in. Dr. Robert Glover, coach, speaker, and educator, is a relationship expert with over 40 years of professional experience. The author of the groundbreaking No More Mr. Nice Guy, the best-selling Dating Essentials for Men, and the recently released Dating Essentials for Men Frequently Asked Questions, Dr. Glover has helped thousands of men worldwide get what they want in love, sex, and life. Here's my interview with the legendary Robert Glover. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Well, I'm here with Dr. Robert Glover. Uh, what an absolute privilege, author of No More Mr. Nice Guy. Thanks so much for carving out some time to be with us today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to talking to your audience. Yeah, so you have a message that I think a lot of my audience, myself included, could resonate with this um, challenge to say no, challenge to stand up for ourselves, to hold our boundaries, uh, our values, whatever else it might be. I want to get into all of that, but I have to imagine, Robert, that for you to kind of venture out into this territory in the first place, you must have had an experience yourself. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your personal element and how that ties into the work you do today? Well, you know, you and I chatted just for a moment before we went live. And, and so, yeah, uh, just a little bit about me. Um, I, I grew up basically being trained to be a nice guy. Uh, uh, my mother, you know, trained me and my brother. She even told us to be different than our father, who was kind of the selfish, self-centered, you know, angry man. And so that was part of my training to be different from him. Uh, I grew up in the, in, in the sixties and seventies with kind of the radical feminism that 
basically, you know, that preceded the whole toxic masculine uh, movement. That basically, you know, it, it began that all men are bad. You know, men are the cause of all problems in the world. So I want to be different than all those bad men. Yeah. I also grew up in a fundamental Christian church. And uh, kind of the message was, you know, uh, you know, turn the other cheek, be be, be nice, you know, uh, and, you know, be a, be a passively pleasing man, uh, even though that's really not the message of, of Jesus. But, um, you know, that, that was kind of the takeaway, you know, be, be that really good guy, which led to me like hiding a lot of things about myself and, and my flaws, my mistakes, my sexuality, my needs, my wants. So all this was kind of the perfect storm to, to create, you know, this passively pleasing man that, um, you know, thought that that's how the world should work. I couldn't understand why more people weren't trying to be nice and generous and caring and conflict avoidant. And I, I thought all of that should just work just fine till a couple of years into my second marriage. And, um, and yeah, I got real frustrated in my relationship. I was trying to be a nice guy, trying to treat my wife well. She never, she always seemed angry all the time. It was never good enough. She never wanted to have sex. And uh, I, I got involved in a, an inappropriate sexual relationship. And, um, and you know, then I, I ended it because it, it didn't feel right. But about a year later, the person I was involved with told my wife about it. And, wow. and she she wasn't happy. Yeah. And uh, she said, you know, you're a sex addict. You got to go get help. And um, I thought, well, I thought, you're the one that needs help. You're the one who's angry all the time and never happy and it's never good enough and you never want to have sex. But okay, I didn't want my marriage to end. So I actually got into counseling and went to a 12-step group for sex addicts um, to basically find out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife, you know, more appreciative and and responsive. (laughs) And uh, quite luckily, I landed into some good places. And and one I mentioned is a 12-step group for sex addiction. I quickly learned I was not a sex addict. I had acted out inappropriately, but I wasn't uh, habitually addicted to those behaviors. But what was beautiful about going to the sex addicts group was for the first time in my life, I, I, I just began to open up. And, and reveal all the things about me that I'd always kind of kept hidden and kept secret because, you know, you can't let anybody see that, that those things about you. And uh, and it felt liberating to just begin to reveal me. Huh. And then I got it with a therapist around that time and not long later joined a men's therapy group around sexual shame. And that began the process of that, that led to what I'll call my nice guy recovery. And uh, I was a uh, I was a therapist, and so I was working with couples, and a lot of men were coming in with their wives or girlfriends, or sometimes singles, saying, "I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. How come my wife's never happy? It's never good enough. I give and I never get. She never wants to have sex anymore." I go, "Hmm, I can finish their sentences for them." And then there was the single nice guys that say, "I'm a nice guy. Women all tell me I'm a nice guy. They all say, "Oh, some lucky woman." Well, you know, we'll be so lucky to have me someday, but they don't want to, to be my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started uh, a No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. We met every other week and I just started writing just things I was learning about my own personal recovery, where this nice guy syndrome came from, how it got reinforced, family, culturally, religion, and and how to start breaking free from that by by being more conscious, by uh, opening up to safe people by being honest, by being transparent, by connecting with men, by making our needs a priority, by having boundaries, things I was learning in my own recovery. And people kept saying, Robert, you should write a book. You should go on Oprah. This could be a bestseller. So over a period of about six, seven years, I just kept writing and then editing and 
Mm-hmm. Finally, it, it turned into the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, which then took about three more years to get published just because publishing companies, the editors kept saying, Robert, we like your book. But our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book. Well, <laughs> it, it finally got published uh, 20 years ago this month um, oh, wow. in, in print. And um, and the royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So men, men <laughs> buy self-help resonating. books. Yeah. yeah, men buy self-help books, especially on Amazon. We'll buy bunches yeah. of them. <laughs> so that's, that's and so, you know, um, for almost 25 years, probably 25 or more years, I've been working almost exclusively with men and uh, wow. you know, doing workshops and online courses and uh, coaching and, and speaking. I was just in London two weeks ago to speak at a men's conference there. So that's that's become my my passion and my mission is is working with men to help men, you know, be their best selves and live their best lives. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. And the work you do is really uh, well, it's it's needed now just as much as it as it was needed twenty years ago when it came oh, out, and more more so, more so. Yeah, one hundred percent. So I want to get into all of it, but um, I I can't help but think there's maybe a couple of people who are like, oh, I don't, I'm not a nice guy, you know, that's not me, and and maybe are either resisting that identification or or maybe they're not sure that they actually identify with it. Can you can you just give us the prototypical nice guy, or or at least mention some of the characters and qualities of that person? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good question. And not probably not every guy listening to this is a nice guy. But but I, I my guess is most guys that are making an effort to be involved in self improvement might have some of those tendencies. Yes, because right? we want to be good guys, right? So and that's what I kept telling the publishers back in the day. These <laughs> men want to be good men. They'll, they'll buy a book and tell them how to do that. So um, it very briefly, I believe the nice guy syndrome as, as I define it. I think it's partly a result of just natural temperament. You know, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I'm not, I'm not real aggressive. I don't like conflict. If people are arguing nearby, or if I, I, it makes me anxious. And so part of it is natural temperament of, of this, you know, being maybe a little bit more passive, not as aggressive, conflict avoidant, pleasing. Uh, so, you know, we're all born with a, a temperament that, that, you know, then develops through our life experiences. Now, I also believe for most men, part of the nice guy syndrome is what I will call an inaccurately internalized um, view of self in the world based on our early life experiences in childhood. So if, we, you know, every child has painful experiences because we're, 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 we're children, we're, we're, we're little, we're helpless, we're vulnerable, we're immature. Yeah. And, and these things feel really overwhelming to us. And when every child experiences some kind of pain or discomfort, they instinctively do two things at an emotional level, not a thinking level, because we're, we're not online yet with a our, with our prefrontal cortex. But at a very primitive part of our survival brain, we start um, internalizing there must be something wrong with me that I caused this. And if I, if I cause this, I must be able to be different or fix it. And so what happens for nice guys at a very primitive emotional level, we start trying to become what we think other people want us to be so that we get their approval and we get our needs met and we get loved and liked and have connection. And again, this is all, I'm, I'm simplifying it in terms we can understand as adults. It's really much more of just an, an, an emotional internalizing into our emotional system. The okay. second thing that nice guys tend to do at a very young age, I mean, we're talking three weeks old, three months old, three years old. The second thing is also then start trying to hide anything about ourselves that uh-huh. would cause a negative reaction in anybody. And, and in my experience working with nice guys in my own work, 
I've come to see that the two primary things that nice guys hide are their needs and wants and their sexuality, because we think people respond negatively to me having needs or wants. And most nice guys do try to be needless or wantless. Um, we operate with something that I call covert contracts. And a lot of, a lot of people read the book say that, that this part really was a profound aha for them. And it was for me in my own recovery. So the three covert contracts that nice guys tend to operate by. So, you know, your, your listeners can kind of check out, see if any of these apply. Okay. Covert contract number one is that if, if I'm a good guy, I will be liked and loved and the people I desire will desire me. And then this is kind of a common meme right now, kind of in social media, is is the quote nice guys that you know befriend a girl, you know listen to her talk, help her solve her problems, treat her different. You know, I call that nice guy seduction. But it's a covert contract. If I'm different than the other men, if I help you out, if I listen, if I'm good guy, then you'll like me and you'll want to be my girlfriend. And then, huh. then when the women all of a sudden go, wait a minute, I didn't know you had that agenda. I thought you were just being a nice guy. You know, <laughs> I thought you actually just cared about listening to me talk about my problems, you know, and, <laughs> and then, and then the guys get resentful and bitter. And then, you know, you, you can read a lot of blogs and, and you know, uh, articles on the internet where women are talking about this nice guy pattern of the guy treating you nice and then turning and being, you know, a jerk to you. And, huh. and, and that's, that's, that's a covert contract. I treated you well. You didn't respond by wanting to be my girlfriend. And then that leads to, to resentment and often a lashing out, which is not very nice. So nice guys, <laughs> I, I begin the book with that. The nice guys is a misnomer. We're really not that nice. Hmm. Okay. Second covert contract. If I meet your needs without you having to ask, then you will meet my needs without me having to ask. So if I read your mind and do everything for you, you'll read my mind and do everything for me. Now, of oh. course, you you don't know we have that contract. You don't know that, that <laughs> why, that's why I'm being nice to you and meeting your needs. And you don't know that you're expected to meet mine. So I'm not going to tell you what my needs are because I want you to read my mind and just know them. And because huh. I'm afraid if I tell you what my needs are, you'll reject me or you'll shame me or you'll leave. Right. And I, I and, suppose, sorry, I was just going to say, I suppose uh, your typical nice guy would especially because you're saying this can develop at a very very young age like early development e emotionally it's very early emotionally yeah and so i imagine that you become very attuned to the needs of other people as a result because that's how you're yeah. getting your affirmation and everything else so ni nice guys can actually do they can hold up their end of the contract very well in the sense of meeting the needs without the request and then naturally they expect it in return yeah and, and to, just to expand on that point because that's a good point is that we do. We become very attuned to these things at an early age. And and one of the reasons is this is kind of going a little bit deeper. It's kind of getting down, down Let's to do the it. core stuff is that for if you're an infant and again, this is all pre-verbal, pre-analytical thought because the prefrontal cortex doesn't start coming online in children until year and a half or so when they can start verbalizing and they start differentiating between self and other it yeah. doesn't finish developing in men till around 25 years old that's why our car insurance goes down we quit <laughs> doing such stupid stuff and and, and so we quit, you know racing our cars and wrecking them <laughs> so because that that it, that's purely because the prefrontal cortex the decision making part of the brain doesn't get fully developed till we're in our early 20s okay mm -hmm. so that means just the amygdala, which is the fight, fight, freeze uh, part of our brain, the part that, re that regulates unconscious um, survival, heartbeat, heartbeat regulation, breath, 
All of that's ran by a, a little part of our brain about the size of our little fingernail on the, the, the stem of the brain. That's fully online when a child is born. And the theory is, is that it stores up emotional memory that then becomes part of the, the DOS, the machine language of the of the mind that all the apps, you know, run on top of that is yeah. wired into every part of the brain. It's hardwired into all of our senses as well. And so that part of the brain internalizes it, this emotional belief that we don't think out and we don't even have picture memory for it because we don't start storing picture memory till later, four or five years old, typically. Right. So. What happens if you're a helpless little child and you begin to experience inconsistency from your parents in terms of them being attentive to your needs and your wants? That's frightening. That's overwhelming. It, it, it's, it, it feels like death uh, to a child. Huh. And so often children will become needless and wantless or highly attuned to meeting the needs of others. And they're not thinking this out, but it, but if we if we could put words to it, it'd be something like, oh, my my mom is stressed. My dad is angry. My parents are fighting. You know, my mom, my, they're depressed or they're, they're distracted with my siblings or, you know, we, right. we, we don't think it. But, OK, if I either become needless and wantless, then they'll be OK and they'll be more likely to be able to take care of me. Or if I take care of them, then they'll be OK and they can take care of me. See, it's still right. and if then, you know, giving to get. But it's very primitive and very primal. But at that, once that gets wired into our emotional operating system, that's how we go about creating every adult relationship. And they all tend to take on this codependent, I call borrowed functioning flair. If I take care of you, you'll take care of me because I don't have, a, have an identity without you. And how you view me must be how I am. And huh. if you aren't meeting my needs, I don't know that I can get my needs met. So it, it plays out in, you know, in in a lot of really unconscious manifestations. And I and I suppose neglect neglect is kind of like the extreme version of this, but there could be like the the less obvious version of this where it's like maybe the child does express their needs and they they get met with a negative response from the parents or sure. something like that as well. And the message that the child obtains from that is still more or less the same like be be nicer be kinder don't yeah. ruffle the it's, feathers it, it all gets internalized i'm bad it's called toxic shame now mm -hmm. now here's the thing and i'll get back to covert contract number three in a moment yeah. but every child internalizes toxic shame because every child has a less than perfect experience in childhood doesn't mean our parents are bad some parents yeah. are pretty crappy but <laughs> sure. you know and i'm not trying to be mean i mean some some are just addicted depressed abusive i mean Thing, yeah. But and even just neglect. I mean, a parent, a child's needs are so constant that, you know, th for example, my mother, my mother married at 17, had her, my sister about two years later at 19, had me a year and a half later, you know, Jeez. and then and then had my sister two years later. So that meant by the time my mom was like all of 23 years old, she had three babies, you know, wow. two of us probably still in diapers. I mean, she had to be stressed by that, right? Yeah. And 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 so that that meant she could, just the very nature of that meant that she could not be a perfect parent and meet my need in 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 a completely timely, uh, consistent way. I mean, it's just reality, yep. and that's a reality 
But a child will always internalize they're the cause of that. Now, there's many ways of coping with it. A child might become needless and wantless. They might just stick a thumb in their mouth like I did and suck their thumb. They they might cry a lot. They they may they, they may and then it, then when we develop 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 into adults, it can take lots of different forms. We might become you know oppositionally defiant. We might become addictive. We might become rebellious. We might become passive. We might become pleasing. We might become perfectionistic. All of those are just an attempt to to try to be okay, right? To try to get our basic needs met of connection and love and to be fed and held. And so all of this is all going on at a really, really early age in life, but it affects our developing brain into adolescence where it tends to get really solidified into our identity. And then we carry that into adulthood. And that's kind of we, we that's how we are in the world is we're just, we just don't even question it right you yeah. know this is how I, I i need to you know we don't know we have these for example these three covert contracts but for nice guys and nice girls it's the only way we know to, to interact with the world and we think it should work every child believes their internal paradigm their roadmap should work yeah. now unfortunately the paradigm was formed when we were six months old right? yeah and now we're still thinking it should work when we're 26 or 36 or 66. Right. And, 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 and then when it doesn't, most of us, especially nice guys, just double down and try harder trying to do what works. And then when it doesn't, that's when kind of that's when the dark stuff comes up. That's where we start going underground, hiding stuff, lying. You know, it's just, you know, that's where that's when the messy stuff shows up for us as adults is when our paradigm doesn't work. Now we don't know it doesn't work. You know, Einstein said that the thinking that got you into the problem you're in is not going to resolve the problem that you're in. You know, we have, we have to have a shift in paradigm. And that's, I think that's the work that you and I, and you know, a lot of coaches and therapists and, you know, ministers and others bring is how can we shift the paradigm? That's what Jesus was about. He was shifting a paradigm, a paradigm based on law. You know, you get God's approval by obedience to law. Jesus came and said, no, God loves you. You can't, you can't yeah. be good enough to get God's approval. You know, you, he is loved. You are loved. You are loved, you know, you know, accept the love of God. That's what I bring to you. And, and that was a change in paradigm. And, and he got nailed to a cross for changing the <laughs> paradigm. People weren't ready for a paradigm change. Yeah. So, right. so that paradigm changes are difficult. So anyway, I'm, I'm going all over the map, but quickly, third covert contract. Yes. And that is, if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free life. But again, you know, every, every, every you know, the, 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 the Talmud, the New Testament, the Old Testament, every, every you know, book of, of religion is basically said, nobody does it right. Nobody gets it all right. <laughs> But the nice guy really has his Peter Panish belief. If I'm good, if I, if I can be good enough inherently and do everything right and please everybody and everybody, nobody's mad at me, then I'll have a smooth, problem-free life. Nothing will ever go wrong. No, nobody will ever get mad at me. You know, I'll, I'll get everything I want. And, and, and that's what leads again to a lot of that resentment and passive aggressiveness and victim pukes that my second wife used to call my be, you know, when I would be nice, 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 nice. And then she wouldn't give me what I want, or she would tell me, you know, she, she'd be unappreciative of me, you know, you know, I'd yeah. be cleaning the kitchen and she goes, how come you didn't wipe the counters off? And I go, I'm not done yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <laughs> instead of saying, thank you for loading the dishwasher and doing the dishes, it's like, how, many, how come you didn't do that? And I, yeah. I'd blow up. 
And, and, and as my second wife used to tell me, she said, I'd rather be with a jerk, with an asshole. At least I know the asshole is going to be mean to me all the time. You're nice to me, and everybody thinks you're a nice guy. And then when I'm not expecting it, you're an asshole. You treat uh... me badly. So that's what, that's a core problem with the nice guy syndrome. Not only do we not get our needs met, we don't yeah. get the love we want. And of course, we're not going to have a smooth problem-free life because life isn't smooth and problem-free. And and so we're, we're living with this nice guy, nice guy paradigm. And the, and the bottom line of it is we end up being resentful, again, passive-aggressive, angry. We often then go to hidden, secretive-type behaviors. And I know you deal a lot with that. And, yeah. and it's because that's the only way we know how to get our needs met is, is just kind of hiding those things and then, you know, begging for forgiveness instead of permission when we get caught. Um, And and so that's the way a lot of this nice guy syndrome gets manifested in the the men that I work with and perhaps the men that you see a lot of. Oh, very much so, yeah. And I mean, that this is why I wanted to bring you on because I think you you probably just described the life of, I would guess a lot of our listeners, if not to a T, certainly in varying capacities. And, that's particular, particularly relevant, I think, for guys who have uh, sexual issues, because like you said, this leads to hidden behaviors. Um, can you just comment on that a little bit? Why does this lead to hidden behaviors? Because I, I, I think I, I think it's just be easy to assume, but I, I would love to hear you explain the connection. Okay, there's probably a lot of dynamics going, right? And I can tell like what happened to me and what I've seen in other men. Sure. Part of it is, in most systems, um, when I say systems, I'm talking about families, religions, churches, culture, you know, organizations. Most systems are, are like the Borg, if, if you're a Star Trek Next Generation fan, or like the Matrix, if you're, you know, a Matrix fan, where the individuals in within the system have to go along to get along, basically. You, you have to give up a part of you for the well-being of that system. And these systems usually have traditions and mores and laws and rules and expectations of the people inside in order for the people inside to be able to be a part of it and benefit from, you know, the the, the group, you know, care, you know, because we're tribal by nature. So our, our ancestors yeah. survived within tribes. You know, we, we either, we either you know, feasted together or we, we you know, we famined together. You know, we, we, we thrived together, we died, you know, and, yeah. and to do that individually was much harder. And, and so they're, they're, they're sharing the group resources where even if there's not enough for everybody to have a lot, at least if everybody has some, it increases likelihood of survival. Okay, that tribal nature has evolved into various institutions. It could be, you know, country, it could be culture, it could be religion, it could be governments, it could be communities, it could be family, especially, you know, extended families like, like you know, we had up until about 50, 60 years ago. So within those systems, there's something that is called fusion that takes place. Fusion is where you do give up part of you to have the benefit of being in the whole. But unfortunately, in most systems that that go on for very long, the parts that people have to give up to be part of the whole, the parts of them that they have to sacrifice, don't really go for the mutual benefit of everybody involved. It just really goes to keep the people who are in power in power. Yeah. And, and 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 the people in power don't want anything rocking the boat that keeps them in a power status. Again, this happens in government, it happens in churches, it, it happens in families. And in families, usually the person in power is usually the most anxious person. 
which sounds kind of interesting because the most anxious person needs to keep this thing managed to manage their own anxiety, whatever that might be. And so since most children, and and for example, uh, what's your cultural background? Where where did you? My my parents are both East Indian from India. Okay. East India. All right. And and so I, I've worked with a lot of Indian men, uh, Pakistani men, Asian men. I mean, it's all, all considered Asia. Sure. India especially is a very fused culture where I talk with Indian men, even men that either grew up in the U.S. or Canada or Europe, um, eh, but they'll still say, you know, my, my parents, you know, pick, pick where, you know, what what occupation I'm going to have. You have right. to be an engineer an engineer or a doctor to make your yeah. parents happy and give yeah. them bragging, rate, bragging rights to with their brothers and sisters, your aunts and uncles and all their friends. Oh, you know, yeah. little Raj, he's an engineer. He went to MIT or, or you know, Ashish, <laughs> you know, he's, he's a doctor and he teaches at Stanford. You know, that's part of that culture, you know, because the British left behind the universities that teach people how to be engineers and doctors. That's what you have to do to make your parents proud. And you have to get really good grades so they can brag about you. And then you have to go to the prestigious institution, work at a prestigious institution. You know, you can't go be an entrepreneur or a life coach. Your parents are going, no, you're bringing shame (laughs) on the family, no matter how well you do. You know, you're not a doctor. You're not an engineer. You have to work for Amazon. You have to teach at Stanford, whatever. So there's all that's fusion, right? You can't be you. You can't be a poet. You can't be a singer. You can't be. An, I, I had one Pakistani client lived in the U.S. all his life, and his parents were insisting he go to med school. Well, he was pretending to go to college while all the time playing in a rock band, and he was terrified <laughs> to tell his parents he wasn't actually going to college to be pre-med. Right? He's, he he was actually afraid his father would kill him. Literally, wow. he was wow. that afraid. That's fusion, right? And then then the the Indian men I work with say, and then. Once I've accomplished all this and my parents can brag to, you know, all my aunts and uncles about, you know, how well I'm doing, then they want to retire and I take care of them. And I go, what age do they want to retire? And they go, and the answer I always get is something like about 45. <laughs> um, I had one of my clients came, I, I, I saw him in England when I was there two weeks ago. And when I was there, he said, Robert, can I come to Puerto Vallarta next week and, you know, come do some sessions with you in person? I said, yeah, he's of Indian heritage. Um, and, and, he just happened to mention, we didn't go into detail talking about it. He financially takes care of his parents and he's only about 34. Right. Okay. So, so his parents are, already, so that's fusion and it's really, really strong in Asian culture, huh. Western culture. It's still strong. I grew up, you should go to this kind of church. You should politically believe like we believe you should, you know, be this, don't bring shame on the family, be this, be that Mary, you know, uh, you know, I, I didn't have my wife picked out for me. But, you know, it's kind of like you got to pass mom's <laughs> approval. So yeah. that's fusion. That's fusion. So sure. what happens when children grow up in this fused state where they're required to give up part of them for the well-being of the big people who have the power yeah. is that there's usually one of two options. Now, the healthy option we'll get to in a minute is called differentiation. But because okay. children don't have the power to differentiate, and I'll say more of what that is. There's two options for a helpless child. One is hide everything that you do. Now, me growing up in like in a fundamental Christian church, you know, the message was was never hide 
your sin, hide your mistakes, hide your, but that message was there. I work, I've worked with a lot of Mormons. It's especially strong in the Mormon church where the whole culture is everybody hides everything. So nobody's real with each other about what they struggle with. And, you know, you've mentioned pornography. Somebody, to, a Mormon told me, I don't know, if, I don't know how you know if this is accurate or not, that the state of Utah has a higher percentage of porn use than any other state. Yes. You're, that, you're not in your head, right? Yeah. That's statistically true year over year. Most, most years. Yeah. Okay, so you know, so think about that. Here is one of the most fundamental of religious groups that teach purity and being good, and all the guys are sneaking off to look at porn. Right? All right, that is that's that hiding of when when it doesn't isn't okay to be you, just as you are. Flaws, mistakes, insecurities. You know, when you can't be you, you go hide it. Right? You go hide it. You go underground with it. And again, that's usually our needs, our wants, our sexualities, our opinions. So that's one route that I see the men I work with take. And that's the route I took. Just hide everything. That's why when I started going to a 12-step group and just telling everything, it's like, wow, I can't wait to come back. That, that feels so good. <laughs> and then and then the second thing that a child can do is is they they push back. They become oppositionally defiant. And kind of for that child, and it's, these both are usually con- determined by temperament, natural temperament of the child. And almost in every family, if you have an oppositionally defiant child, you'll have a nice guy child or, and vice versa, right? So the oppositionally defiant is if I give up me to do what you want, I don't exist. So I have to do the opposite of what you want, which means, you know, uh, if, if you're, you know, if we're a religious family and we're really into, reli- you know, sexual purity, you know, I'll, I'll go out and have sex. If education is a priority, I'll, I'll start getting D's and F's and flunk out of school. If, right. you know, this is, you know, I'll start using drugs and alcohol at 14 years old. And so it is, it's a, it's a pushback against the imposing rules and expectations of the emotional system using family oriented or you know, often religion in religious families. So right. what happens with that person is they spend their, their, their life doing the opposite, basically cutting off their nose to spite their face. So, you know, so they start doing drugs and alcohol, being sexual, getting into trouble, getting in, getting in the, you know, going to the principal's office, you know, getting busted, having to go in the military to get. And then maybe they have some come to Jesus moment, you know, either in the military or they get married or have a child or near death experience. And and then all of a sudden they realize I can't keep living that way. Right. Yeah. I, right. Maybe I should go back to school and get a degree. My parents were right. I am smart. Right. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm messing my life up by pushing back. But most of those, if they take on the nice guy pattern, they still believe that there's shame's right near the surface. It says it's only a matter of time that people find out I'm I'm really this this losing this loser this this person that messes everything up. Yeah. And so I call that the I'm so bad nice guy. They're trying to be a nice guy, but they think it, it, their 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 shame and their badness is right next to the surface, and everybody's going to find it. I'm what I call the I'm so good, nice guy. My shame is so pushed down so far that I don't see it. And I think I'm so good and everybody should like me and everybody should want to be like me. But they're still driven by shame. In fact, that's the two core pillars of nice guy syndrome, shame and anxiety. And pretty much everything a nice guy does is trying to manage their shame and manage their anxiety. So bringing it back to your question. For example, we're all sexual beings. You know, right. we're, we're wired that way. We're created to be sexual beings. You know, I, 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 I'll get playful with my religious friends and people I talk to. And sure. I'll say, what was the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve? Want to help me with that one? 
the first commandment that God gave to Adam and I Eve. guess it was be fruitful and multiply. And that literally means go f a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's, we don't translate it that way because we really, religious people get uncomfortable with that with sex, right? So, yeah. But the first commandment God gave to Adam and Eve was go have a lot of sex. Right. <laughs> and I mean, did you get taught that in church? Definitely not. Not with that translation, no. <laughs> not with that translation. But that's what he said. Be fruitful right. and multiply. Just literally, it's a poetic way of saying have a lot of sex. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're kind of going, I had never really even thought about that. So, but but again, it's, and then and then I'll tell you guys, okay, go into the new, go to the gospels. And you know, a lot of a lot of you know, Christian men I work with got have some pretty strong uh, issues around sexuality. And again, I grew up in a fundamental Christian church. I have two degrees in religion. I was a minister for eight years. I get it. But if you go look at what Jesus taught, what's recorded in the Gospels of what Jesus taught, he never condemned anybody for having sex. He never condemned people for being uh, um, for having sex outside of marriage. He never condemned people for having premarital sex. He never condemned homosexuals. Now, if you go to a lot of churches nowadays, that's what you hear preached constantly. But Jesus did not preach that. Now, the one story that's in the Gospels that involves sexual infidelity was, you know, a bunch of religious right ringer, you know, brought a woman. There's just the woman, not the man. The woman right, caught the in the woman. very act of adultery, right? It was a setup. And, you know, the, the story is Jesus wrote in the dirt until everybody got really un well, uncomfortable. And he said, the person who's never sinned, you get to throw it. Because the Old Testament law said she'd be stoned, right? right. We're, we're going to kill her. And he said, the per person that's never had a, committed a sin, you can stone her. Go ahead, throw the first rock. And then that's when he started writing in the dirt. I don't know what he wrote. But all of a sudden, the people kind of mm, 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 you know, <laughs> shuffled off. And then she was left all by herself. And, and, and then he asked her, you know, he said, go, you know, you know, where's your husband? And she said, well, you know, I, I can't remember what she said. He got five husbands. I've had five husbands. And then he goes, you're right. And the man you're with now isn't even your husband or something like that. And he just said, you know, I don't, they don't condemn you. I don't either. Right. Go, go and, and sin no more. Now, sin just means missing the mark. It's an archer's term. You know, you shoot your arrow at a target and if it falls short, you don't go to hell for that. You just right. adjust your aim. You just do a little better next time, right? So he yeah. said, go and do better, is what he said. Go and do better. Mm -hmm. But he didn't condemn her, right? right. So most of the sexual messages that is, is propagated in religion is not, is not necessarily the word of God or the word of Jesus, right? Yeah. So, but what happens is most children— in, in, in most cultures, and, and with or without religion, grow up with sexual shame. I'm bad for being a sexual being, even though it is how we're created, it's how we're made, it's how we're wired, it's how, you know, whether you believe in God, evolution, however you, however you look at it, we yeah. are sexual creatures, and that's essential for human survival. Yeah. Now, we hit adolescence as boys, and we have all these raging hormones, and all of a sudden we start noticing girls. But at 13, 14, 15 years old, having sexual access to a real-life human being isn't much of an option in most cultures. Right. And, and so, so what are boys, what are, gonna, what are they going to do? Their brains or their home, everything's wired that, 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 you know, that, to, to, to fulfill the first commandment God gave to Adam and Eve. They're <laughs> wired to be fruitful and multiply, but they don't have access. They don't have the options. There's the way culture, again, is set up. 14-year-old boys tend not to have sexual access. But it's, it's the height of when they should have sexual access. Yeah. So what happens when you don't 
have access to a real life human being and don't have um, uh, a culture or family that would even actually support you being a sexual human being or teach you how to be sexual in ways that you know, are not going to fundamentally hurt you in the long run. Right. And it's, we just get the message like I got in my church. Sex is dirty, evil and sinful. So save it for the one you love. You know, save it for marriage. I'm going, yeah. what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. that does, there's something about that doesn't line up. And then then we're supposed to be able to get married. And now all of a sudden sex just isn't dirty, evil switch. and sin. Flip the right. switch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the real question then is, what do we do? And since for most nice guys, we've already been going underground or hiding, you know, everything, we just start yeah. hiding our sexuality. Now, in my era, you know, at my age, what what that typically meant was if one of your buddies, you know, found his father's Playboy magazine or Hustler magazine under his dad's bed or whatever, you got together with some friends and, you know, you looked at the pictures and you talked about it and maybe had fantasy and maybe you learned the joys of masturbation. But uh, well, I will ask a question in a lot of my workshops and I'll ask guys, think about your first sexual memory, whatever that might be. Maybe it was the first time you remember having a wet dream. First time you and the next door neighbor girl played, I'll show you mine, you show me yours. Or maybe even being sexually violated in some way. Or your first kiss. What's your first sexual memory? And I'll ask them to just think about that for a minute. And then I'll ask them, was it in a positive environment? Did it occur out in the open? Could you go tell your parents about it? Would they say, that's fantastic. You've reached another developmental milestone. Let's go out and have pizza and celebrate. Or was it hidden? Was it secretive? Was it shame-filled? Did you feel bad about yourself? Did you, did you think, you know, I'm, I'm going to hell or I'm doing something wrong? Now, what that actually does, that shame actually crosswires sexuality and amps it up at a young age. And now it starts seeking some sort of fulfillment. And and so, you know, if you, if you talk to enough people, boys and girls, adult men and women, when they're boys and girls, their sexuality gets crosswired to being secretive, shame-filled. And again, uh, we're supposed to grow up to be adults, and now sexuality is all really okay and in the open, and we can talk openly about it. And No, and so what happens, like for me, you know, at my age, you discovered, you know, some dad's Playboy magazine, you saw your first naked woman or two, and you had fantasies about it, and you started masturbating. Right. My my son and stepson are in their late 30s now, and so they grew up with the internet, and especially grew up with broadband and the internet, just the beginnings of broadband internet when they're like 14, 15. Yeah. And once we got a computer and broadband internet, they were spending all their time stealing music on Napster and, down, and, and watching porn, right? Yep. It was just so ubiquitous and accessible nowadays everybody has their their mobile phone that has faster cell connection than even the broadband internet back in the, the 90s had. oh yeah and and that and that means you know and you know this porn drives the internet something like i'm i'm, I'm probably misquoting but something like 70 percent of the bandwidth on the internet is pornography yeah. that's that's how that's how big of a void in a sense that porn fills for, for so many people around the world. Right. So what's happening is we have this natural urge to be sexual. It's wired into us. Access often gets, we don't have access to be able to, to be sexual. Yeah. The sexual experiences we do have get wrapped in shame that and, and guilt and, and secrecy that 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 um that just 
I don't know, puts it on steroids, right? Turbocharges the sexual drive. It makes it bigger than it just is by itself. Right. And now we have all these, you know, uh, access points over here using the term of, of, of pornography. But yeah. even we men, we can pack around our drug in our brain in just a form of fantasy. Every 100%. woman we see, we start fantasizing what she looks like. What, what, what would it be like to see her naked, to have sex with her? And yeah. then, and then, we're driven to, 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 to masturbation. And I, I tell the guys I work with, listen, it's called a sex drive because it's meant to drive you to a real live human being and put body parts in body parts. It's not called a sex drive to drive you to your computer or your cell phone or your hand. Yeah. It's, it's, it's meant to have fulfillment in connection with another human being. And yeah. so I call porn safe sex. You don't have to, you know, get a woman interested in you. You don't have yeah. to, you know, convince Interest her to have rejection. sex. You don't have to have rejection, deal with, you know, losing your erection, coming too quickly, her being disappointed. Sure. You yeah. don't have to deal with any of that. You can just create this perfect world in your head and fantasy and porn. And you can go to your favorite porn site and you, over and over and over again. You can find the best of whatever you want. And, and why would we quit doing that? I mean, mm. it, it just, and then especially if, if you're not, allowed to be sexual in an open, transparent way, this yeah. hidden way of doing it takes on such power. And it is difficult and challenging to break that habit. I've worked with so many married men that said, oh, you know, once I get married, I'll quit looking at porn. I'll quit masturbating. <laughs> I won't need to. You know, I'll have a real life person with real life body parts. And the funny thing is, guys always go back to the porn and then they hide yep. it from their partner. And yes. then they feel shame and guilt around their partner. And then if their partner finds out, their partner feels devastated, yeah. both from the from the lie and the secrecy and the fact that their partner wanted to look at other naked women and maybe yes. isn't even looking at her all that much. And, yeah. and so all of it is, is such a mess. Now, I don't think porn's bad. I don't think it's evil. I just don't think it serves men well, just like I don't think sugar serves us very well. It's built into a natural drive to have carbohydrates in our, in our body, but the way yeah. it's been processed doesn't serve us well. Porn, yeah. I think, in the same way. It doesn't yes. serve us. Now, what happens, though, is when most men decide they want to try to quit porn, they it actually, they're quitting it from a shame-based place. I'm bad. Yeah. I'm doing something bad. Yeah. And so anything where shame is driving the bus is probably not going to be very successful in trying to, 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 to change our, our perceived bad behaviors. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and, and that's why it's so hard to let go of. Yeah, well, and that that's exactly, and that that was my experience, you know, trying to get trying to get free of this stuff. It was a very shame driven. Uh, I, you know, use the guilt and the condemnation to try to motivate you to behave better. Yeah, and how'd that work it, for you? <laughs> yeah, not well at all. So I, I guess I, I have to ask then on the other side of this, you know, for the nice guys who are making these covert contracts, they have, they have the two pillars in their life, the shame and um, I'm forgetting what the other the one is. Anxiety. anxiety. Yeah. Um, what is a man to do to, to, <laughs> to break out of this and to actually change things in his life? What did you do to, to start turning the tables? Here's what I did. Uh, it's a process, but I find it, it seems to be a pretty systemic process that, that helps men. Number one, I, I went and got help. Uh, I, I, I say this and no more, Mr. Nice Guy. Do not try to work on your nice guy issues alone. Don't try to work on porn issues alone. You, you go get safe people into your life to help you with this. Now, excuse me, as I said, 
I got lucky. I stumbled into some safe environments where I, I just started revealing me. So that's a beginning place. Yes. If shame and anxiety are, are the core drivers of nice guy syndrome, perhaps of porn use, um, of a lot of addictive behaviors, I believe. If we can start bringing that shame, the anxiety out into the open and share it with safe people, it begins to relieve both the inner shame where we think I'm bad, I'm evil. And we begin to get more accurate feedback from people that say, no, that doesn't make you a bad person. You know, that does, maybe doesn't serve you, but it's actually pretty common. You're pretty normal. Really? This is normal? I'm not the only person that sneaks away and looks at porn? No, yeah. pretty much everybody does, you know? Yeah. Um, so to normalize it that, I, that I'm not bad is, is such a big piece. You're removing the shame from any process, anything begins to let you kind of get back to the you know the um the 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 factory settings of who how you were wired to be as a, as, a, as a male as a human being okay yeah so find safe people and begin revealing yourself begin finding out that other people are just like you you're not alone you're not terminally unique you're, you're not messed up in some fundamental way yeah um, release the shame getting the you know the the, the feedback that, that you know you're okay um, that's number one. I then also started working on being honest where I, you know, all the things that I kept inside and hid, I started telling the truth to whoever needed to know the truth. And that time I was married to my second wife. So whenever I'd caught myself in my head, spinning up a story of what I was going to tell her, cause I didn't want her to be mad at me about something. I made a commitment to her. I said, I'm going to, when I catch that, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to tell you, Hey, I was going to lie to you. Here's the lie I was going to tell you. Here's the whole truth. Here's the truth of it. And yeah. I came to find out, oh, oh, this isn't actually that bad. People don't actually no. respond terribly to the truth. I'll, I'll tell a story in a minute about that. In fact, I'll, I'll tell the story. Um, I This is pretty early on when I was in the 12-step group I was going to. I, I attended it for maybe about six months or so. I started working with a therapist. And, um, and a about this time, I remember having this, this kind of dark sexual impulse and I didn't act on it, but it scared me to even have that, that dark sexual impulse. Yeah. You know, I thought, Ooh, I didn't even know I was capable of thinking, you know, about that. And yeah. I, I didn't do it, but I thought it kind of scares me. So um, I, I went to my 12 step group a couple of days later and, and I told them, you know, I had, I had this impulse, didn't act on it, but you know, I had the thought, and they all just go, thank you for sharing, Robert. You know, right. like, <laughs> nobody says, you're an evil human being. That's right. disgusting. How could you? you know, <laughs> how could you? And then that, I had an appointment with my therapist already set up. So I left, you know, that meeting and drove to my therapist's office. And I told her, I said, yeah, I, I had this, this impulse. And she just kind of looks at me with kind compassion and says, well, let's explore that and see what it means. I go, Okay, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> and then I, I'm driving home, and I used to tell my my my, my ex wife that her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did to anything and everything. It was, it was like, yeah, and so that's why I didn't tell her a lot of things. I didn't want the overreaction. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm a baseball fan. So I'm, I'm batting a thousand. I'm two for two. I've told two different you know entities <laughs> this secret. You know, nobody's gone you know south on me. Nobody's reacted. I'll go tell my wife, and even if she has a reaction, I'm still batting six sixty six. That's there not that bad. <laughs> so I, I got home and uh, I, I said I need to talk to you. Went back to the bedroom, sat down. And I said I was need to tell you. I've already told my twelve step group this. I already told my therapist this, and I, I just want to tell you. 
the other day I had this thought, this, this sexual impulse. And I said, I didn't act on it, but it kind of scared me. And so I, I told them, and I, I just, I wanted to tell you. And she looked at me and she said, that doesn't surprise me. And I'm glad you told me. She never mentioned it again. Three for three. Three for three. And I'm going, hey, this telling, this bringing things out into the open thing isn't so bad. Right? <laughs> so, so, you, but you have to release shame to do that. So you have to do it with safe people. Then work at being honest. Another piece of this is I started working at connecting with men. I joined a men's group, the yeah, 12 step yeah. group I was in was all men. I realized as I started working with guys that identify as nice guys, most are more comfortable around women where we're approval seekers. If we can get a woman to approve of us, think we're a good guy, like us, tell us. I used to think if a woman wanted to tell me her problems, I was special until I realized, oh, women will talk about their problems to anybody. You, yeah. the checkout stand person, their cat, it doesn't <laughs> matter. Yeah. You're not special. But I thought <laughs> I was special because my mom told me her problems. I, I'm special, right? right? So I started connecting with men and, I, and I'm still in that process. I've been doing my own work for over 30 years. Yeah. And it started in men's groups. I'm still in a men's program. I've been, I'm just started the fifth year of it. And, and I still work like exclusively with men. So something about connecting with men. I, I think men, our relationship with men, we can be more honest with men. There's no sexual agenda with men. So we're not trying to do what I call maintaining the possibility of availability like we do with the woman. Um, and, and so we just can be real with men. And yeah. I actually, th- I, 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 I teach that I think the masculine, masculine, there's masculine and feminine energies in all of us, and without going too far, I believe the masculine is a source of love. We usually think of the feminine about being about love, but the feminine is a seeker of love. The feminine seeks to be filled with love. It's an empty bucket with a hole in the bottom in us and in women that wants to take in love. The masculine is action. And, and you know, if you go to like Scott Peck's, uh, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, his definition of love is intention and action. Those were what I define as masculine traits. Right. So I feel loved to death by the men that I'm with. And I love my wife dearly. She loves me dearly. But yeah. it's like, you know, it feels like her love for me fluctuates from moment to moment, you know, <laughs> you know th- throughout the day. Th- this morning when she first got up and came outside and I was writing in my journal. She looked kind of all crabby and like she was upset at me. And, I, and we talked about taking the dog for a walk and I'm going to water the plants. And she's all, and I thought, okay, you know, I, th- I think she still loves me, but you know, yeah. she, she, she isn't <laughs> acting real loving. And then we go for a walk and we're walking. She kind of starts warming up and being more affectionate and being, you know, just more kind of playful with me. And I go, Oh, now it feels like she's, you know, loves me. Yeah. I don't experience that with my guy friends. I only experience right. that with, with feminine creatures. Excuse me. <clears throat> right. And that makes sense because guys, they're just, they're just there. We're, we're there. And, and, yeah. and, the, and again, it's intention and action. That's what love is. Okay. Yeah. Now we have a feminine side that, that, and that's one, that's another really piece of our own recovery. I teach men how to husband our own feminine. We have an empty bucket inside of us. that seeks to be filled and it, it runs out the bottom as quickly as it comes in. Yeah. If we go looking to other big empty buckets with big holes in the bottom to fill our bucket up, they're just, they're going to go like that. Wait a minute. Yeah. My bucket's empty. But I tell guys, if we can husband our own feminine, take really good care of ourselves, take good care of our needs, connect with men, um, nurture ourselves, get enough sleep, move, eat well, live with purpose and passion, meditate, you know, whatever. If we can fill our own bucket, that's going to overflow and be yeah. attractive to a feminine creature. Okay. Yeah. So again, this kind of got, got going off on different tangents. So, so connecting with men is a big part of that. 
yeah. learning to set boundaries. I remember I started working with one therapist and the very first session I had with her, she put a string on the ground and started talking to me about boundaries. Now I was in my thirties, my second marriage, I already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I'd never <laughs> heard of boundaries. So boundaries are your wow. ability to say, yes, no, I'm going to, I'm not going to. You know, we get to decide who comes into our space what they can do in there, how long they stay, when it's time to go, you know, what we're willing to, to give up of ourselves and what we're not. That's all boundaries. And children aren't taught boundaries. We're taught the big people can do to the little people whatever they want. We're right. not told, dad, time out. You know, I know you're angry, but you know, why don't you go cool off a little bit and then we'll talk. <laughs> we can't do that. So I learned to set boundaries. And then maybe, maybe all these are important, but the other piece was, I'll just throw out, is learning to make my needs a priority ask for what I want, surround myself with people who want to help me get my needs met and practice being a good receiver for the people. Because nice guys are often mm. terrible receivers. Yes. Because we yes. have guilt and shame. Now, my experience is if a man is doing those things, got safe people in his life, he can open up and reveal to reveal his shame and anxiety. And I'll add to that, learn to soothe yourself, you know, learn to breathe. And like when my wife seemed all crabby this morning, you know, part of me wants to jump in. What's wrong? Everything okay? I just breathe and soothe myself. And I, you, know, you know, she'll tell me if she wants to tell me, she, you know, whatever. Maybe she slept bad. I don't know. But my anxiety was I got to fix it. Right. Learning to soothe ourselves, learning to be honest, be transparent, have boundaries, connect with men, make our needs a priority. All of those I've found begin to squeeze out any any anything that would make having these little secretive hidden behaviors at all interesting. They, yeah. they, they you know, I, I, I I'm grateful. I've never been hooked on porn. And but again, I've worked with plenty of people that are, and I can understand why you get hooked on it. But what my other bad behaviors I've worked on, I find if I fill my life up with enough goodness. Those other behaviors, usually they're secretive, they're hidden. They, yeah. they, they begin to diminish and we're doing something in secret. It actually starts feeling bad to you. Yeah. And so you go, I, I don't like this. I, I, don't, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not, a, it's not shame. It's just paying attention that, you know, if you eat enough sugar, it's going to feel bad. Yeah. You know, we don't need to be sh have shame about it. We just need to pay attention to it feels bad. Maybe I shouldn't eat so much sugar. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, one one of the things we say in our community is that a satisfied heart rarely wanders. So I, I agree with what you're saying. Like I think if you're finding if you're finding the right ways to get these needs met, if you have healthy alternatives, um, yeah, your appetite for some of these more toxic things actually starts to just diminish. I agree. And and you know, and I'll throw into that, but but here's what most men come away with. Oh, I have to get my, my the woman in my life, or I have to get a woman in my life to have that happen, or I have to get the woman in my life to consistently love me, desire me, want to have sex with me. Then yeah. I won't go do those things. And I'll keep right. saying if we if we factor in that a woman has to be in the equation for any of this husbanding our own feminine, filling our own bucket, um, it, that that's that that's actually a, a, a quick slippery slope back into those hidden behaviors because right. the women in our life are never going to show up and love us like we want to be loved, be sexual like we want them to be sexual. And which is kind of curious because a lot of times the men I work with have loving sexual wives and they actually don't let their wives be loving and sexual to them because they're not very good receivers. Yes. So they, have to, they do have to practice receiving. And again, that often is a good way to practice beginning with men, letting men give to you. Um, so yeah, the the more you 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 have a satisfied heart, the more your your bucket is filled. The more you're just taking good care of yourself, 
the less you have these impulses to go do these things, you know, whether it's eating the carbs or, or you know, looking at the porn or binge watching Netflix or surfing for hours on the internet for cameras you're not going to buy. They're all yeah. the same thing. They're all just kind of, you know, they're, they're all junk food satisfaction. They don't really satisfy. Yes, I totally agree. So uh, uh, you've been so generous with your time. And I, I just wanted to ask one last question, if that's okay. Do you, do you still have time for another question? Well, yeah, I, we're, we're, it's time to quit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect, good. So my question to you is, um, you're also talking to fathers. So I'm sure you're talking to, to people who resonate with the nice guy message. And we obviously like, we can draw the connection. Like my audience is very much familiar with how much childhood and early experiences kind of flavor and formulate some of our experiences as an adult. And one of the questions I love to ask someone like yourself who just has such a great expertise and a knowledge about the subject is what, so in addition to just recovering from nice guy syndrome, these five things, uh, I, I was taking notes, we'll make sure that we, we put them in the show notes and everything like that. What can, what can a guy do when he becomes a parent to raise his own kids and make sure that they don't become nice guys? What role can they play in changing things generationally? Okay. And that's a good question. And it can also be kind of a faulty question in that all of a sudden it becomes this attachment to outcome, which always leads to suffering. Mm -hmm. And I, okay, I got to be a good enough parent that, you know, my, my child, my son, you know, whatever, doesn't ever become a nice guy. Uh, my, my doctorate's in marriage and family therapy. So I, I did, you know, a lot of couples therapy, but I used to do quite a bit of family therapy as well. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt. I used to tell parents, you're going to fuck your kids up. You're going to mess your kids up. I mean, yeah. we're, we're imperfect. And our children, e even if we were perfect parents, they're going to go out into an imperfect world and get messed up. Yeah. And, and you know, going back just even a few hundred especially a few thousand years ago, children were raised by either a very large extended family or a tribe, not by one parent, not a single mom, or even not two working parents who are exhausted and have no time or energy. Yeah, They were point. raised by a tribe. No one parent can ever sufficiently give a child everything that child needs to be a fully functioning adult. It just yeah. can't happen. That means, it's, I mean, I, I worked through my own dad issues before he passed away. And he was a very flawed human being. But when he passed away, I was, I was totally at peace with who he was as a human. Yeah. And I realized he, yeah, he was imperfect. Uh, I'm a dad. Uh, I, I've, I've raised one biological son. He's 37. I have a 16-year-old granddaughter. I've raised wow. uh, four stepchildren. I'm raising two kids now. Uh, my stepdaughter's 15. My stepson is 17. I've been in their lives for about seven years or so. Wow. Uh, so since they were, you know, pretty young. And... I, I raising my son, I could have been a much better father. He's an amazing dad to my granddaughter. Um, but but I think what I learned the most is, you know, let your kids be who they are. <laughs> Love them for how they are. Don't try to get them to be something that they're not, either because, you know, we we want them. My, my dad wanted me to be a sports star. My mother wanted me to be different than my father, you know, so I, those are the messages, you know, growing up in a fundamental church, I got to be like this. Differentiation, we didn't get to talk about that, but differentiation is yes. the ability to ask yourself, what do I want? What feels right to me? Well, what, 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 what's in my heart? And then to be able to follow through on that, even if you have changed back messages from outside of you in the form of, of neurotic guilt or, 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 or threat or 
you know, whatever. And the, the, the anxiety between your ears that say, oh, I'm going to get in trouble or this might be wrong. Yeah. The only true morality comes from the ability to ask yourself what feels right to me. Because mm-hmm. if we're borrowing somebody else's morality that says, that's a sin, that's right, that's wrong. And that's, that's not coming from our heart, from who, what we believe to be true. That's a false morality. Now, people say, well, that makes for a subjective morality, but I think that's better than a false morality. <laughs> that if we ask, if we bother to ask ourselves, what feels right? Does me, you know, hiding away, looking at pornography feel right to me? I don't know that it's immoral, but if it doesn't feel right to me, I should probably stop doing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, but most of us are not encouraged to ever ask ourselves what feels right. What's yeah. my truth? And then we're not supported. So what if, as parents... We paid enough attention to our kids. And again, Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled has just a great session on parenting that, that I really love. Um, and he says, if parents pay attention to their children in timely, judicious, and I add consistent ways to that, children internalize, I'm lovable, my needs are important, and I can count on the world to be just like my family in that I feel lovable and my needs get met. Hmm. Now, when parents aren't consistent, aren't judicious, don't meet the needs in timely ways, the children's internalized are different. I must not be that lovable. My needs must not, must not be that important. The world's going to be like my family. And if kids have to take care of their parents' needs, a child will internalize a fourth core belief, I'm not good enough. Because right. no child is good enough to take care of their parents' needs, right? right? Most adults have a hard time taking care of their own needs. So <laughs> if my my now i'll call it my third round of parenting raising my son and stepson it's kind of a unique situation in in that they don't speak english uh i, I live in mexico my wife's mexican right and and she doesn't speak a lot of english either you know <laughs> i just I, like i said I, I just had a client visiting you know this last week and i love bringing people into my home where my kids and my wife get introduced to people from different walks of life and and, yeah. and speak english to them and so they realize oh if i want to have this big life in a big world i have to learn english and i and and there's you know i i, I could be a trader i could be a pilot i could be an attorney i could be this you know and so i'm I, so anyway, I, I I get to watch my family talk a little bit of English, you know, to, to my client <laughs> who was here visiting with us. And so, but because Spanish is not my first language, and I've, I've learned it in my 50s and 60s to, to be in a relationship with my wife, I can't have long, deep conversations with my kids, right? It's just not, wow. it's not in the cards. Wow. So I had to ask myself, what can I bet, what can I most do? And really, I just came away with almost because they're the same age as my granddaughter, I mean, stepdaughter 15, granddaughter 16, stepson 17. Yeah. Wow. Right? I thought I will I will treat them like I treat my granddaughter. And my granddaughter, I just love her to death. Yeah. I just give her so much love. Yeah. You know, I, I message her, I tell her how great she is, I hug her, I, I'm you know, I, I just I just I just love her. Yeah. And so that's mainly what I do with my two stepkids. And, you know, mom kind of gives the orders, the directions, yells at them, scolds them, this and that. They like getting disciplined by me. I don't yell at them. I just say, uh, all right, we're not going to do it that way. Understood? Okay. All right. We're done with it. They like that. My stepkids always like the way I I discipline. But I just love them to death. And so what I would say, if you can just think in terms of how does my child receive love? Even what is their love language? Is it me spending time with them? Is it my praise? Is it me giving to them? Right. You know, what what is it affection? What is their love language? You know, and, and so for like with one child, 
you may go spend time with them and do things and take them out and do the things you I always took my sons around when I went camping with men or to baseball games. I bring my boys so they they get to go be around that. Um if if their love language for like my my stepdaughter, her her love language is affection and words of praise. So every time I see her, come here, I hug her. Yeah, give me a kiss. Yeah, I tell her how beautiful she is, you know, all, all in Spanish, of course. So yeah, I, I I love her. I just love on her. And both of the children, you know, they all they have their own strengths, their own weaknesses, their own personalities, but both are flourishing, I believe, because I've just I just shower them with love. Yeah. And yeah, I don't have to I don't have to do a lot more than that. I I, I can't do a lot more than that. I yeah. treat them well and just love them to death. That's beautiful, man. Beautiful. Man, I I feel like I have another 15 questions for you here. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to get you in for another round at some point. Cause, we'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah, we, we hit on a lot of concepts, but this has been so rich. I know that um, that this was a message my audience needed to hear. So thank you. Thanks for just telling it so directly. And uh, if people do want to, obviously the book is No More Mr. Nice Guy. Um, but if people want to find out a little bit more or get a bit more plugged into what you're up to, Robert, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, just go to drglover.com, which is D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. It, you know, it's got my books there. It's got podcasts that I've recorded. It's got my uh, my online, my on-demand video courses. It's got workshops that I lead. Um, and it's, it's got everything that I do. And, um, you know, you, you and I were talking a little bit before the call. And, you know, I mentioned that I'm in the process of building um, a a large, I, I, I hope it to be the world's largest online community of conscious men. It'll be a subscription community right. where men get access to all the, all the content I've ever created, to community calls, to curated journeys of mastery and integration, um, to, to coaching, to community. To, it's, you know, and, and it's going to be big. And so I'm working with several of my, my coaches to get this built. We hope to launch. This is February 2023 when we're talking. We're shooting for June of 2023. Uh, we're going to call it Integration Nation because uh, in No More Mr. Nice Guy, I talk about being an integrated man. Yes. Um, so we hope in the next just couple of weeks to have a landing page up for it, just a single page where people can, you know, sign up to start getting information about, you know, how it's developing. So uh, if, if people listening to this want to just go try to see if integrationnation.net, that's .net, pulls up my, you know, the, the landing page, it'll be a couple more weeks yet, but sure. uh, we're going we're gonna to start letting people know what we're doing and giving men all over the world. And, you know, we're so excited because even now with, with the, the open AI, you know, the, the chat GBT this out uh-huh. that we, we hope to be able to, to have everything, you know, I've created thousands of, of hours of content and we hope to have it available in every language with using you know, the chat yeah. GBT. Um, we have a search engine built into it. So, um, it's going to be big. It's going to be big. And, Amazing. you know, it's kind of the, it's, it's my legacy. It's, it's, you know, what, what I hope to leave behind that, that I yeah. think will, will make such a difference in the world. So, you know, if your le- listeners want to go, just go see if the, if the landing page is up whenever they listen to this, it's just integrationnation.net. Perfect. Yeah. We'll put the link in the show notes and, uh, and I'm sure it'll be a matter of time before they can click on that and it's active. So that's perfect. Uh, Dr. Glover, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate this. Thank you for the invitation. It's been fun. And I'd look forward to coming back again. Fantastic. 
Wow. Well, I don't know about you, but I learned a lot. I took so many notes. I think that's the most notes I've ever taken for an interview. Uh, really appreciate Dr. Glover and his time and just everything that he offered us today. This was uh, this was incredibly rich. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick the one thing. What's the one major takeaway that you can run with from this? Because this was a dense episode. Uh, if you look back at like the actual talk times, I probably spoke for like less than 10 minutes in this interview, uh, maybe even less than five. He he was just offering nuggets and I was just letting him do it. Um, and what I want you guys to do is to pick pick like the one thing that you're going to take away from this. And then I would go check out his stuff because his his stuff is so good. Um, and even just on his website, like he, like he said, he's been really intentional about building resources and really trying to, um, try to just make sure that he's leaving a legacy behind. And that's a good thing to hear from somebody who's this expert level, because what it means is that they're going to make all of their good stuff as available to you as possible. So I would capitalize on that to the absolute best of your abilities. Links are all in the show notes. And if you heard this and you're like, okay, I'm a nice guy. Now I better understand a little bit of my own sexual dysfunction and misbehavior. And maybe you're looking to get some help with that. Well, we set aside time every week to speak with people like you. Uh, the link is in the show notes and you can just book a time straight into my calendar or somebody on our team. And we can see if you want some help and if we can specifically help you get free of pornography addiction and other sexual misbehavior. Our system is very simple. It's very aligned with Dr. Glover's. We want to get to the roots of the issue. And we want to really figure out what's causing all this. Uh, we help you kind of resolve those roots and then build back a new life, quote unquote, a new belief system and a new way for just living so that you can go about your life without any of the uh, any of the misbehaviors. And so uh, the link is in the show notes. Uh, I'd be happy to speak with you and see if we can help you out. And without further ado, guys, that is everything for today. Much love to all of you. Thanks for listening. And one, one last thing really quick. If you got some value from this, if you think there's other people who need to listen to it, please share this. Don't be shy about it. Uh, that might be one of the greatest gifts you can give your loved ones is just sharing valuable content. Hey, uh, thanks again for listening. We'll talk soon, guys. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcasts that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.